This is Christophe Morin, co-author of The Persuasion Code, How Neuromarketing Can Help You Persuade Anyone, Anywhere, Anytime, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on The Marketing Book Podcast, each week, I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Christoph Morin to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Patrick Renvois. The Persuasion Code, How Neuromarketing Can Help You Persuade Anyone, Anywhere, Anytime, published by Wiley. With over 30 years of marketing and business development experience, Christoph Morin is passionate about understanding and predicting consumer behavior using neuroscience. He has an MBA and a PhD and is the author of Neuromarketing, Understanding the Buy Buttons in Your Customer's Brain. He was a founding member of the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association and is the co-founder of SalesBrain, the first neuromarketing agency. Christoph has received multiple awards during his career, including being a three-time winner of the Advertising Research Foundation's Great Mind Research Award. And interesting fact, his job title at his agency is Chief Pain Officer. Christoph, congratulations on the Persuasion Code, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. I'm delighted to have this conversation with you, Douglas. Well, we're going to talk about uh, why you're called the Chief Pain Officer, but you know, in answer to many listeners' questions, it's, it's not about leather and all that sort of thing. But as I often do, while I'm reading an author's book before an interview, I'll post a picture of the book and just let everybody know what I'm reading. And I'll post that on Twitter and, and LinkedIn, which is why listeners should connect with me so they can find out what's coming up. And I mentioned that I was reading your book and it was very well researched and authoritative, but that on page 51, you write that men tend to overestimate how much women desire them. You were joking, right? No, this is actually a very simple and very enlightening piece of research, which speaks to our inability to apply logic to most of our 
thinking patterns, which, as you know, the theme of the book is very much to once and for all recognize that we tend to treat consumers as if they were logical machines. Right. But there are so many biases that affect our ability to assess even our own chances to be successful at dating. And those are the biases that in our book we want to take into account to help people create messages that are not doomed to fail. I see. Well, there's a lot of things to talk about in your book, but instead of that, let's talk about how men can make women desire them more. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> it's a future book uh, oh, that great. I think would have a nice uh, audience, but uh, for now, we're still focusing on helping businesses and professionals right. waste less money and time putting together messages that will bounce off people's brains. Super, super. So you say that this book will help you realize that most of your efforts to persuade others are not optimized for the brain. And before we talk about that, uh, you mentioned that this book is sort of a, a long overdue sequel to the original book you published, which I mentioned earlier, Neuromarketing, Understanding the Buy Button in Your Customer's Brain. Explain the, uh, the difference between the two and how the two are connected. The first book uh, was published in 2002. At the time, I had met my business partner, Patrick uh, Hanvoise, and we both were rather frustrated and somewhat disillusioned with the general approach towards sales and advertising, which was frankly based on obsolete science. And more importantly, we uh, recognized that all these books on sales and marketing advertising effectiveness fail to recognize that the real target of a persuasive message is actually an organ. And so we uh, issued and published the first book with this idea that maybe it was now time, considering the progress of neuroscience, to put the organ, the brain, at the center of the equation, what happens when we manage to persuade. And so this idea of brain-based marketing gave birth to a new field. We are credited for starting the field of neuromarketing, which academics uh, now call consumer neuroscience. Maybe it sounds less manipulating. Uh, but, uh, but the idea was, let's bring once and for all more science and more credibility to what truly happens in the brain, which a lot of what happens, of course, is not conscious. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we need to use uh, clinical methods, uh, ethically and correctly, to not harm anybody, in order to measure and 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 analyze uh, metrics and data that come from brain activity that can begin to enlighten us in so many profound ways in terms of the the relevance and the effectiveness of what we do to convince or persuade. Mm -hmm. So. To understand neuromarketing, do you have to be a neuroscientist or a, a neurologist? That's a great question. And we address, in fact, in our new book, the fact that the slow adoption of neuromarketing may well be because the impression is that you need to go back and get you know, a PhD. Uh, that's not true at all. What you need to simply uh, do, as most people in marketing and advertising should do, is to remain curious and be willing to challenge, frankly, many of your assumptions in terms of what works, what doesn't, and then do uh, a few hours of basic, uh, you know, learning and teaching on brain anatomy and enough 
is uh, possible to know about the brain to really start recognizing how profoundly crucial it is not just to be a better advertiser, but to be a better parent and frankly, a better leader. Uh, Understanding what we know of emotions, understanding of what we know of that dynamic tension between the cognitive rational part of our brain and the primal brain is is really essential in so many ways on how we behave and interact with others. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about the primal and the rational brain. But before we do that, I want you to explain something that really resonated with me because I had worked in you know big ad agencies in New York years ago, and I really knew the type of people you were describing. <laughs> explain why the what I like to call the advertising industrial complex is sometimes threatened by the findings from neuromarketing. I think it's very simple. Uh, we, uh, as all of us, have real trouble changing our habits and changing our beliefs. Sometimes it's uh, suggested that they are, you know, somewhat hardwired in our brain. Mm-hmm. And so when we first suggested that to really be better in terms of creating a brief, uh, guiding the creative development of a, an, ad, an ad, you should monitor the brain responses. You can only expect resistance from agencies that typically enjoy creative freedom, abilities to not really, frankly, propose uh, accountability, you know, accountability to the extent of, of measuring really the effect of an ad based on brain data. So we were introducing um, some, something that was perceived as an additional burden that could reduce control and reduce creativity. We have, that, however, uh, been in bo- in, involved in agency work and have managed to really uh, partner at, at, in ways that demonstrate that br- science is not meant to limit, but expand, actually, the quality of the creative um, you know, development process. But it's taking time, and, and frankly, Douglas, the, the purpose of this book is to call for you know at least a, a hurdle that I think is going to be still f- for a few years in the way of the fast growth development of the practice of neuromarketing. And marketers these days are fond of talking about big data, uh, web analytics, and uh, I think uh, you quoted David Ogilvy a few times in the book, and I can remember, I think at some point reading where he had said that um, marketers' use of research is sort of like a, a drunk and a lamppost. It's more for support than illumination. Talk about why marketers' addiction to web analytics, surprisingly, may not be completely healthy. Well, it isn't, especially for one simple reason. Big data and the type of data that you get, especially from the web, uh, do not necessarily help you create a theoretical framework. And by that, I mean, if you don't have a theory that helps you frame and organize the data that you're collecting, you really have nothing but data points that seem random at best and do not explain or predict what you're doing. I'll give you a very simple example because today I notice so many companies are so excited at doing A-B testing, Mm -hmm. the principle of which is simply to suggest that we're going to do two types of messages, A and B, and of course, by the time we test them and collect uh, click-through or view data, whatever is available, we're going to surely identify the best of A and B. And the problem with that, of course, is if you're not using a theoretical framework at at all, you're possibly testing two very uh, mediocre messages and select one that is just the less 
you know, bad of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that's, that's an, it's like an addiction. You know, you're sort of repeating a behavior that you think is going to be rewarding, but in the end, you're not learning much. And so I really have taken a lot of my clients away from this, um, you know, bad, uh, bad habit because understanding theory, understanding the, the principles that can help you predict and and repeat effect of messages is is at the core why we published this new book. Mhm. So one thing in the book that really got my attention and of course now I've read your book I got to be really careful with my words. You elicited a lot of pain which uh <laughs> which got me paying attention and that is my memories of so many years of sitting behind a, a mirror in a focus group facility or talking to consumers and marketers and advertisers treating whatever the consumer said as gospel, as if it were written in stone. And I was so encouraged when you said that the promise that marketers can fully decode the effect of ads by solely engaging in dialogue with an audience is a complete fallacy. <laughs> and I, I was reminded of some focus groups, I kid you not, where people would be sitting there, and I think it was for men's razors or some product, mouthwash, and these guys said, well, I'm not influenced by advertising. And I wanted to jump through the window and say, yes, you are. You have no idea what you're, you're influenced. So talk about the limitations of traditional marketing research, I guess, compared to what neuromarketing is able to, to tell us. I'm happy to, and and I should say, uh, for full disclosure, that I have for 20 years of my market research career used extensively conventional market research methods. And, and my argument is not necessarily to throw all of it you know, in the garbage, is to simply help people recognize that self-reported is overrated. Our capacity to truly articulate and share our experiences, whether it's a shopping journey or the process by which we commit to a $3 million you know, software solution, all these reasons and emotions that are associated with these processes are subconscious. They're not even available to our capacity to, to be aware and articulate. And it became very clear to me that as long as I was taking, as you say, what people tell me as, as the truth, I would be not only highly limited, but often misguided in my interpretation <laughs> of what goes on. Yeah. And that's why I took an interest in, you know, I, at 45 years of age, I said, I'm not going to allow my career to bump against that limitation. I'm going to go back to school, get my PhD in uh, media psychology, learn everything I can about the brain, start learning how to use clinically electroencephalogram, measure skin's response, put goggles on people's eyes that help me dilate, you know, look at dilation of pupil and where the eyes are going and for how long. So I reinvented myself. It was really difficult to be perfectly honest, but so enlightening. And I did, as many uh, as other people have joined the movement, did manage to, I think, make the case that adding neurophysiological data and doing it safely and ethically is this enormous additional pool of insight that comes from what people cannot and will never be able to share. And as a result, our theoretical understanding of how persuasion works has finally taken a huge leap. I mean, there's half a million papers on persuasion, 70,000 books, and most of them do not even mention the brain. Let's revisit that because you argue that many business books have given a a bad name or a bad reputation to emotions by suggesting that emotions may be 
in, uh, an impediment to good decisions, and yet you believe that is the exact opposite. Explain what you mean there. It's more than a belief. It's this point. It's a fact that oh, that's right. our I'm emotional. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. And and it sounds arrogant. Maybe no, no, that's you know, it's it's from I... a Frenchman. But but the point is, it's documented now where you can say that the role of emotions chemically is to effectively not only make us decide but guide our decision. And yes, it's true. In still so many textbooks. Uh, emotions have a bad rep, and as you grow up, you know, you hear around you, whether it's teachers or sometimes your parents, you know, be in control of your emotions. Um, or and stop so being want- so emotional. <laughs> exactly. And so, of course, the first books that sort of alerted I'm, I'm us— looking at all you guys, married men. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you remember the, the, the popularity of emotional intelligence, which, um, you know, uh, Mr. Goldman uh, made it a, a, a very successful book franchise. But the idea was, oh, my gosh, now it's okay to actually consider that there is, in fact, in some form of intelligence that comes from our emotions. Well, I do measure, using very simple technique— what's called emotional arousal, the degree to which we have emotion could be pleasurable or unpleasant. And I also measure the valence of that emotion, meaning the the intensity of that emotion. And 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 every single time we see an ad, we we measure and assess the extraordinary role of what we call an emotional cocktail or an emotional lift. Uh, and David Ogilvy, back to him, said so famously, you know, selling or creating a great ad is very simple. All you need to do is light a fire under people's chair and present the extinguisher. I mean, yes. if you think about it, when you present fire under people's chair, you're basically creating an emotional cocktail, which is centered on pain, which is centered on fear. And uh, I do uh, argue in the book that this is by far the most effective way by which you can hijack or, or awake the part of the brain that dominates the persuasion process, the primal brain. But then you don't leave people hanging with the burn on their skin. You present the extinguisher, which represents the joy you know, or the liberation that you gain from the possibility that all all this fear is going to vanish. And all of this message is scripted as an emotional lift, which is exactly why it works, and this is how we buy, and this is how we make decisions. Mm. You know, one of my favorite quotes from the book is one that I had just read last week in another book by Antonio Damasio. We are not thinking machines that feel. We are feeling machines that think. So with that said, please explain the difference between the primal brain and the rational brain. And just so you know, since I read this book over the weekend, I came in today, (laughs) we spoke for a couple hours here, and now the word primal brain is just, (laughs) everybody's saying primal brain, Uh, primal brain, primal brain. Thank you for that. Please explain. Yes, I'm very happy to do that. The anatomical discussion is somewhat confusing, but think of the primal brain as the bottom part of our brain, which is uh, evolutionary the oldest set of brain structures that includes the brain stem, that includes the cerebellum, and also includes what is commonly described as a limbic system. That part of the brain, primal, as the name would suggest, 
is ruling our life as we know it. This is the part of the brain that regulates breathing, digestion, blood flow, uh, all the major neurochemicals that are so central to the way we not only move but respond emotionally and cognitively. Neurotransmitters are produced in the primal brain. The primal brain has always been identified or perceived as secondary to our cognition, to our thinking. And it's only in the last couple of decades because we have majorly improved our capacity to image activity in the brain, especially using functional MRI, that we need, we see now and we know how profoundly crucial the influence of the primal brain is to the rest of the brain, which is described as the cortex or the type of brain that we so often discuss because it's the one that made it possible for us to create language, the one that gives us the capacity to hold beliefs and memories, to make predictions in our frontal lobe. So this entire top part of our brain is what we call rational brain. And both of those brain structures have very uh, different objectives. They, of course, work with one another. But what we discovered in our research of persuasion is that the primal brain is still in control of how we approach any form of persuasion. And really that dominance is, is, is at the center of our uh, model. It, it's at the center of all the business cases that are presented in the model to demonstrate that if you reach the primal brain first, your journey to persuasion has much higher chances than if you skip it. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the effect of bottom-up and why that's so important. Could you explain that? In other words, if you can't get to the bottom, you're not going to get to the top. That's exactly that. And, and many, in fact, theories based on older understanding of our cognition, cognition did uh, suggest that the brain has a dual processing system one which is uh, from the primal and one which is from the cognition. But it never was possible until we had the clinical data to see how the sequence is really one and then the other. In other words, think of the primal brain as the gatekeeper mm -hmm. of our cognition. And if we just dismiss a message because it hasn't had the ability to reach us emotionally, intuitively, visually, which are the primal conditions upon which we can even process that message, we are not going to elaborate it in the cognition. I mean, that's simple and, and certainly sad when you consider how many messages are so crucial for us to pay attention to. But unless they speak to our primal brain first, we're just not going to get to them. So true. And there was one part where you talked about how to the primal brain, text looks like hieroglyphics. So Exactly. These, and you show examples <laughs> of, of ads that were all text and didn't test well. And then another one that shows like a shark. Uh, I think this was for life insurance. And, and it yeah. was <laughs> tested much better. Uh, it was so interesting. And I, let me just say that as focus group of one guy that read this, as I was reading through it, you explained why the brain is reacting in certain ways, and then you give examples, and it's as if we're going, that's why that particular thing works. <laughs> like, yes. first, uh, there was one part where you talked about why a certain before and after in infomercials work, because it's they're, they're contrastable, and it was like, oh, that's why, that's why. But the thing is, like you mentioned, this isn't a lot of hunches. This <laughs> There seems to be an awful long uh, footnote section of this book with all these... Uh, studies that you've talked about. But if time permits, I'd like to try to walk through some of these key aspects of speaking to our primal brain, if we could. And the first one is 
the the first stimulus you talk about is this is personal, and that's where you say you, you need to make sure your message is is centered fully on the the people you're trying to persuade, which for me sounds like well well of course. <laughs> But yet, so many companies aren't even thinking about who they're trying to communicate with. Can you talk about the personal part? The personal ties directly to the concept of pain. Uh, when you research really what makes us move and decide and, and survive, and when you examine really what is the default program of the primal brain, we call it vigilance. Mm-hmm. So we are always in the primal brain on a mission to avoid so f- suffering and move away from threats. And when we say your message must be personal, we insist on making that message about the possibility that you have in your product and services of removing a threat, a pain, a frustration, because these are the priorities upon which the primal brain is going to allow some form of distraction and concentration of energy we call focused attention to actually assess the extent to which that threat that you're magnifying right in front of me is relevant and urgent. You see, persuasion doesn't work unless you create you create the, the condition for relevancy and urgency, which is exactly what Ogilvy was saying. And by saying, hey, look, light a fire under people's stare, and if that's true, then you have awakened the personal, you know, self-centeredness that is in all of us in the primal brain to execute attention and processing of a message for the purpose of seeing whether or not it's going to change my life. And just to add to that, you talk about how self-centered the uh, human brain is, and I guess it's that way that's helped us to survive for so long. You bet. And again, this is a, an aspect of us that we sort of either deny or do not want to talk about because we experience uh, some shame and embarrassment talking about. But yes, of course, thank God we are selfish. And and uh, without it, we would uh, simply not uh, be around. Uh, and that selfishness is is one aspect of how Making a message personal is all about the customer, not about the business. And as you say, and go on any website and you'll find that companies tend to put 90% of the message on them, who they are, their mission statements, their history. And at the very core aspect of a a primal brain, people have zero interest in the mission (laughs) statement, zero interest in the fact that the business has been around for 80 years. (laughs) You know, even (laughs) even their moms who love them aren't that interested. Exactly, yeah. And I should just say that you, know, you talk about how some people are filled with shame about being self-centered. Uh, over the years, I do have had a few bosses that had absolutely no shame about their <laughs> self-centeredness. But let's talk about the second one, and this is where the infomercial example that I threw out just a few minutes ago comes up, and that's about contrastable. And so you talk about the primal brain wants to accelerate decisions. It wants to make decisions quickly, and we do that best when we have limited options. And this is in the face of so many self-reported consumers who say, oh, I want lots of options. But the truth is their primal brain doesn't. Exactly. I, I was struck by a, an excellent book called The Paradox of Choice. And as a, as a chief marketing officer, my own experience uh, running uh, marketing for a very large chain of, of retail stores is that I got trapped believing that my customer always wanted more choice. And when I would execute on that, the needle would move and I had to abandon market research as I knew it then to observe my customer's behavior and found them 
blew in their face in front of more than three brands. Mm-hmm. And I finally got my, uh, my trap, and that is customers ask for choice. We all, in, in any way, at a cognitive level, believe that in the presence of more choice, we have more probability of finding what we want. But at the core of our primal brain, we hate it because it's creating too much uncertainty. It's calling for too much energy that we don't have, cognitively speaking, to assess and create the rational conditions for a good choice. So we love and crave situations where we have only two choices. My life without this product, of course it should be painful. Of course it should be demonstrated that you cannot live without this product, otherwise there's no point paying attention to it. And my life with this product is going to be beautiful. So we engage in our own creative agency in those visuals that are fairly simplistic, but always, always demonstrate huge level of attention. And as you rightly said, many infomercials or competitive advertisements are using these templates. And most people will tell you, oh, we don't like infomercials and we don't like comparative advertising. But the financial ROI, which is something we also discuss in the book, is 10 to 15 times higher than any other form of advertising. Yeah, but now you're talking about proof and numbers. I mean, come on. <laughs> I worked with those people. They didn't want to do any infomercials, you know, but it's, it's wonderful. And, it's, you know, it's also like watching... Um, there's clearly something to my enjoyment of watching shows about home renovations. I don't yeah. watch them very much, but when I have seen them, there's something very interesting about all the before and after pictures you see. Absolutely. And and that goes straight to the to the craving of the primal brain to decode situations as binary uh, options. And as you said, we we just uh, can we can craft a story on a brand in two visuals. And we have plenty of examples of that on our website. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about tangible. And of course, there was only six of these, but after reading it, I I learned why they were so uh, almost more powerful than my brain can understand. (laughs) But you talk about making something tangible means you're, you're trying to make it simple and sort of minimize the cognitive energy necessary for people to have to process their message, which is, it reminds me of you say uh, the expression uh, pay attention means a lot because it really is a price to get someone's cognitive attention. What does it mean to have something that's tangible? How can we make something more tangible? So the whole point of making a message tangible is making it digestible by the primal brain. See, in the primal brain, we don't have neurons that allow us to decode pixels into letters, letters into words, words into meaning, and so forth. So we're limited to what we can understand in the present moment, mostly through visual and experiential uh, moments. And, And this, by the way, and this is something I teach to companies, you know, like G Healthcare or um, Intel and Microsoft and others that sell fairly complicated things. I teach them the fact that simplifying is neither a, a way of dumbing the message, number one, or insulting the intelligence of your customers, because at the level of the primal brain, intelligence has nothing to do with our craving for simplicity. It is hardwired in our primal brain. We demand it, because we want to be efficient. And in fact, we are chemically rewarding our brains each time we are able to understand something very quickly. In fact, Douglas, you interview people for a living. Do you find that you would want to ask your people that, that you do the interviews to be more complicated with you? Or do you yeah, enjoy- so that's, that's my next question. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, in do fact, you-, you, said, you said in the book, 
that no one ever complains about a presentation being too simple. Exactly. Exactly. So, so in, and here's the sad truth. It's very easy to be complicated. Yes. And in my teachings with customers, I put them in front of their messages and I help them recognize that it's crap, not because they're not using the right words and so, because it's impossible to decode it without a major uh, rush of cognitive energy. And I have to tell them, you will not get to that cognitive rush of energy until the primal brain has put its teeth and its limited neurons on an earlier form of message, which is only primal centric, mm-hmm. which means that you can decode it and understand it in five seconds. And making it tangible means using imagery. It means uh, creating a demo of some sort, a sampling experience where people go, oh, I get it. This is what it's all about. And I believe it based on my experience now. But if you project everything onto the future, if you're using complicated algorithm and flow charts and paragraphs after paragraphs, your message is not tangible. Therefore, it's not believable in the present. Therefore, it has zero impact on the primal brain. Yeah, I, I don't know that anyone's ever said this to you, but I made a note in the margin To myself, and this may be bad advice, I often give myself bad advice, but I said, you know, it would be helpful if marketers would think of their customers as cavemen more often because and address their their limitations as well as what their true motivations are. I I have another test, um, which is simply to present your messages to a five-year-old. And frankly, as bizarre as it seems... It's really the ultimate test to figure a, a, a way of either using analogies or metaphor. As you know, a five-year-old doesn't really have much of an understanding of what the future holds or what are predictions and so on. So everything is in the present moment. In the primal brain, you know, I often say uh, you're really dealing with you're like your pets, you know, cats and dogs. If yes. you watch them, they don't seem to worry about tomorrow. We don't. Everything is about the present moment. Yes. So what can you do in the present moment? When you are on a mission to help people understand a value proposition, as complicated as it may be, well, you have to consider that you're pitching this to a bunch of five-year-olds. Right, That's right. It. Today, when we were talking about it, I said, <laughs> you know, some of this some of this reminds me of training a dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where, where the motivations of the dogs are very, very clear. Just a couple of things I wanted to ask about some of these very important stimuli, and one of them is about the visual. And you talk about uh, how that's really the dominant channel through which we perceive the world around this. And I don't think everyone appreciates just how important images are. And and, and also, uh, it speaks to the importance of great design. And people that want to skip that, they think, oh, no, I just need rational information. I just need the information. But they don't know what they don't know. That's so true. And by the way, as we're progressing now, this is the fourth stimuli. We, we I skipped a memorable, yeah. Sorry. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> we, we want people, as they learn all these different properties, so to speak, to actually understand that our recommendation is to use them all. And you can't really cherry pick those elements of personal and tangible and visual and drop the others because we like to say it's like a language yes. to the primal brain, you know? And if you're going to speak French, you might as well learn the rules of grammar and and not just learn verbs, right? Because that would right. get you 
very far. So the visual is frankly a a, a very fascinating aspect of how we process messages. Of course, our senses are commonly referred to as, you know, channels through which we pick up information that helps us make sense of the world. But we don't understand until you go through thousands of pages of textbooks on how the sense of visual works in the brain. We don't uh, always realize how much space the visual sense takes, more so than any other space, more neurons than any other space, any other sense, and uh, how much energy it also takes at any given time. Some data suggests that nearly 50% of our entire brain energy, the brain blood flow, is committed to some sort of visual processing function. Now, bear in mind that visual can be using physically your eyes, which are part of your brain, to move data that's basically lights of photon particles as electrochemical signals to the back of our head where we do visual processing. Or it can also be if you close your eyes when you read a book and you imagine. I mean, this is also visual processing. And what we found is is research that demonstrates that most of our critical decisions, including choosing a political candidate or even your mate, your husband, wife, or partner, are nearly more so 80% purely visual. Now, are you going to go back home and tell your partner, you know, honey, I picked you because the way you look? No, it it seems inconceivable. It seems, you know, pretty awful to suggest that that we would even buy that idea. Well, I never get in trouble for telling her how nice she looks. (laughs) You're right. Exactly. But but back to the decision-making process. As humans, we are so limited because consciousness gives us such a restricted view of the rules that organize our decision-making. And it's really upon going into the science that you're stepping back and finally recognizing the importance in this particular case of the visual channel and the fact that you can communicate in five seconds or less just using the visual channel. And we have plenty of examples in the book, as you see. And that doesn't mean you're not using text. It means you're giving the function of the visual piece of your communication to deliver meaning, understanding, and creating an emotional cocktail without the requirement to read or listen or use any other sense, including taste and smell and and, uh, and touch. Yes. So one other thing I want to ask about, and that's uh, another Frenchman. Not you and not your co-author, <laughs> but who was uh, – this is a, as it relates to emotional, uh, the emotions. Who was Rene Descartes, and why have his rational mind theories been mm, – more disproven in recent years? Well, René Descartes was a brilliant uh, philosopher, mathematical um, genius that created this vision of how the mind works that, that d- just simply doesn't reconcile with what we, we, what we know today. He believed that the mind was basically outside of the body and the body was just uh, purely mechanical in some way and never recognized that the body could be, and especially the brain, could be part and parcel of how we think and how we, we, we see ourselves. So his limited view of who we can be as humans um, sadly influenced uh, decades if not uh, centuries of, of philosophers. And, and so we challenge, as did uh, Mr. Damasio uh, in this famous book called Descartes Error, we, we challenge this worldview that tends to put the brain into a box and, and not where it should be, which is the central organ that helps us understand and organize how we form beliefs.
beliefs, how we play, and sometimes with a lot of struggle between being somewhat rational and between being completely irrational and irrationality, uh, as uh, as regrettable as it can be, is part of who we are. And that's, uh, again, uh, you know, a difficult aspect to rewire and change. But it is about time that we reboot many of those th- theories, general theories of human thinking and of human behavior by integrating neuroscience. Absolutely. Now, at the beginning of the interview, I mentioned that you are the chief pain officer. And I'm sure your employees are happy. They're not really in pain. But (laughs) explain why pain drives buying behavior in such an overwhelming way. Yes. And so in the chapter on diagnose the pain, which is the first step we say people need to really spend time examining when they're considering their consumers, what pains, what frustrations, what fears do they have? Um, We make the case that it's much more important to tap into fears and pain than it is to ask people what they want. And I have come up with that uh, conclusion myself by failing to be as successful as I wanted to be uh, in in marketing uh, overall by always believing that what people want is the best type of data I can have to you know serve them great products and great messages. So my passion for the concept of pain and digging into the fears is reflected in my title as a grabber, if you will, but it's also the the central part of how we uh, encourage companies to rethink and revisit the information that they have on their consumer behavior because often as i'm sure you've seen they collect you know satisfaction data they collect uh, a laundry list of what people want and it it gets them nowhere in terms of their messages because the fragmentation of what we want is not organized upon a biological principle but the fears and pains are And there's so much more commonalities. There's so much more opportunities to simplify messaging when you start looking at pain rather than what people want. Yes, and I just, on page 125, there's a massive arrow pointing at (laughs) this one column, which is the, I mean, you talked about the different pain types and and on the left side of the column, it talks about some of the words that people might use. Mm -hmm. But on the right-hand column is the one I love. It's like the fear and pain affecting the primal brain. Like mm-hmm. uh, fear of not having enough, fear of losing what we have, fear of not knowing enough, fear of not having control, fear of powerlessness, fear of worthlessness, fear of extinction. Yeah. Powerful stuff. It is. And of course, as you can imagine, you know, conducting research and personal interviews when you ask people, what are you ashamed about? is not exactly simple business. No. Uh, and what we do often is we don't even get into those conversations, we present visuals or videos that address these these topics of shame or fear of embarrassment. And we can measure as, as a proxy, if you will, we can measure the degree to which their brain and certain emotional areas in the brain are effectively responding to those stories. Mm. And it's the type of data that we use to further explore themes that could be much more effective that come often from those fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let the brain do the talking, which it can exactly. now with the functional MRIs. Can you talk just briefly about the role, the powerful role uh, that people have related to the the fear of regret? 
Yeah, so we we nail specifically research on the fear of regret because as it pertains to buying something, it, it's often discussed and has for decades as the ultimate cost of a poor decision, which is this feeling that you want to go back and uh, you know go back in time and erase your 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 decision. At the same time, the fear of regret is visible in the brain as people contemplate a purchase. So it's not something that is only after the purchase. It's one of those core fears that we look at and is central to our understanding of how much people experience almost physical pain by considering a purchase. And there's a particular area in the brain called the insula, which will light up very, very much uh, each time we see the price of something or each time we are under the pressure of, of purchasing. And therefore, it's really crucial not only to understand the nature of regret, but to uh, understand that the challenge of a good persuasive message is to overcome the fear of regret by presenting value that is not only relevant, not only credible, meaning that you're not you know, deceiving and you're not uh, on a mission to manipulate or exaggerate, and that you're going to provide the evidence right away that would come, for instance, from customer stories, that would come from seeing how the product works, that could gradually dissolve that fear of regret. Mm -hmm. and, and so the X, yeah, that's, sorry, that's the whole idea. Go ahead. You also talk about the fear of regret people have by potentially not buying. Yes, of course. And and that would ultimately represent, you know, the fear of, of having missed an opportunity to do a transaction that could be adaptively, you know, beneficial and and we recover pretty quickly, usually when we don't make a purchase and we regret, but it's very difficult if we make a purchase we don't like to recover. And in fact, the all the time, the only way to recover is to rational that you're is to rationalize that you're actually very happy even with a product that that has disappointed you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're kind of bullshitting yourself, so to speak, yeah. to recover a bad purchase. <laughs> but who can BS themselves better than the human brain, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all the things exactly. we tell ourselves. Uh, so, well, Christoph, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? First, I think they would appreciate learning about the primal brain, its central role, not just in purchasing, but in the way we shape certain views, including political, religious. We are irrational. And as Dan Ariely's book demonstrated, yes, it's the, it's the bad news, if you will, we're irrational, but it's predictable. And, and because it is predictable, it really helps us get a much better understanding of who we are, get a much better appreciation for the biases that influence many of our decisions. And so the book is about providing that value, if you will, at a personal level, but also giving people tools that are practical, that are scientifically based to improve your capacity to persuade anyone mm. and to do so without you know, wasting time and money. Yeah, that was certainly a big takeaway for me. And I, I knew the power of the subconscious, but it was really made very clear by your book. And I'm going to stop Good. fighting it now. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So what books have inspired your working career? I would say the work of uh, David Eagleman has been central to uh, my love for neuroscience. Uh, Incognito is one of those books, Douglas, that I think you would appreciate because it's all about the primal brain and the millions of decisions that are being made and 
so flawlessly executed uh, by the brain. So we have to reappreciate the wonders of the subconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Incognito will do that for you. He also wrote most recently another book called The Brain of You, uh, in which he does uh, talk about the importance of understanding your brain, especially frontal lobes, because so much of our decision-making and our capacity to also control emotions is really a function of the health of our frontal lobes. And he's been as far as investigating, you know, how many people are in our prisons. And according to him, 50% uh, are there most likely because they have uh, weak frontal lobe activity. So there's a way of looking at neuroscience to me that that goes beyond marketing, that goes beyond clinical use, but really gets into who we are and how we respond to disease and disorders by a better understanding of brain functioning. Mm, Fascinating. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I'm in the thick of a couple of books which I found uh, absolutely fascinating. One is called Social by uh, Dr. Lieberman and a uh, really compelling examination of of what uh, we are in terms of our craving for communication. And I'm also finishing a book called Irresistible, which is a fabulous book to look at uh, addiction uh, of all sorts by using a a lot of models coming from neuroscience and really debunking our behavior in an approach towards uh, addiction, especially uh, by using a better understanding of the brain. Oh, interesting. We will make sure to include links to all these books yes. in your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. So, Christoph, how best can listeners learn more about you and this book? LinkedIn is a good place where you can see my posts, uh, also Twitter. Uh, of course, my company's uh, website, salesbrain.com, is where you would find lots of cases, examples, and um, and continue to learn about our journey and making uh Scientific Persuasion Mainstream. Mm. Well, we'll include links to your site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle, all of that in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, like I just mentioned. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your podcast player of choice, like Apple Podcasts, for instance, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Persuasion Code, How Neuromarketing Can Help You Persuade Anyone, Anywhere, Anytime. The authors are Christophe Morin and Patrick Renvois. Christophe, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Douglas. And that closes the book on episode 207 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Rohit Bhargava back to the Marketing Book Podcast for the third time to ring in the new year and talk about his fascinating book series that is updated each year about the latest trends, non-obvious 2019, how to predict trends and win the future. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong.
I read more than just page 51, Christopher. <laughs> I hope you appreciate the humor. I figured you would. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. Now, where are you from originally? I'm French. Oh, really? Just like your co-author? That's correct. Oh, yes. Okay. And Patrick and I met uh, on the tennis court. Uh, we were friends and, and our careers were very different, but we decided to join uh, uh, almost 20 years ago, wrote the book, uh, first book together. And, and this is now the work product of uh, 18 years. Right, right. Well, what happened to your French accent? <laughs> well, my parents managed to insist and uh, bribe me to learn English when I was seven years old. And that was probably the best thing they've ever done because it really made me not only fall in love with the English language, but, but ultimately did my master's when I was uh, 22 and, and moved to the U.S. and have lived in the U.S. since I was 28, so 30 years ago. 